Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Hello, I'm Mark Severino, a grown man who enjoys Donald Duck comics, and I'm joined by another grown person who I've managed to convince to let me talk about said comics. Uh, If you can introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sarah Santiago. Um, I am from Phoenix, but I'm currently living in the land of Scrooge McDuck, Scotland. Yeah, very exciting. Maybe we can get you back to talk about a Scottish set one. But, That'd be cool. Um, but today we are here to talk about the Barks story, Volcano Valley. And I know that we both have some strong thoughts about this one. <laughs> so um, let's see. Before we get into it, Sarah, can I ask you what your background is in comics? I have very little background in comics. Uh, It turns out that I have a problem with task switching between visual and verbal. And so every time I tried to read a comic, I would just get really confused and not know what was going on. And it wasn't until my mid-30s that I figured out that was going on, Um, which makes me very sad because it is such an excellent medium. And there are so many stories that I just have people tell me. So this is not like unusual. I will sit people down and say, please tell me this story about Deadpool and this. And then I'll just listen because I want to, I want to consume the stories. I just can't do it in the medium provided. So I have a translator. So you like, um, you like the story and the art, but maybe separately. Yeah. Well, we can um, we can look at those separately in in this because uh, this is a podcast. So, you know, it, we've got uh, an auditory medium to talk about something that's very visual. So that should be a good challenge. So you, it sounds like you, you like some of the superhero stuff, even if you don't read it directly. I, I do. Um, and I did. I did read. So I used to be a part of a podcast called Educating Geeks. And it was instead of saying, oh, well, you haven't seen, read, whatever, this, you're not a real geek, we would turn that on its head and say, oh, you haven't seen, read, heard, whatever, let me introduce it to you. So I was introduced to The Sandman, which is not a good comic to be introduced to if you don't understand how to navigate through the medium yourself, but I loved it, and I'm so excited that I get to consume the story in like a movie TV show. I can't remember what how that's being developed, but I'm really that's excited right. for that to come out. Yeah, something to look forward to. All right, well, as mentioned, we are talking about Volcano Valley, and we, um, at Barks Remarks, we start off with a little, little bit of background about the story. This comic was published in, the, the cover date is May of 1947. I guess that means it's actually April of 47 in the old series Four Color, number 147. It's been reprinted a number of times, and this one is uh, one of the longer ones, actually. This one is 30 pages. Um, For a brief synopsis, this one involves Donald accidentally 
buying what turns out to be a real plane, uh, believing it to be a war surplus model for the nephews. Um, and he quickly sells it to a grifter from the fictional country of Volcanovia, joins him on a plane ride, and basically gets stranded in, in that backwards country. Uh, there's a lot more to it than that, and we'll, we'll get into that in our summary soon. But um, a little bit more background and trivia. This one saw, uh, it was republished in a kind of an unconventional format, I think in the late 60s, as a wit a Whitman Big Little book. Um, I'm not very familiar with those, but I saw that when researching it. And then um, in reading about Bark, something that comes up a lot is that um, he he wrote a lot of these far-flung adventure stories in foreign lands, largely based on his readings of National Geographic, and is is widely known to not have really traveled very much until much later in his career. Um, but because he was based in Southern California, you know, uh, from his Disney animation days, he did make it across the border into Mexico for day trips. So um, I think that may have given him some background for this one, but honestly, I don't think the depictions of the characters in this one are, they're probably not based on those visits. They're more based on some pretty widely held stereotypes of that time, things like Speedy Gonzalez and, and so forth. I did find the value range for this one. There was a documented sale of a 9.4 grade, which is a very good condition, for $7,250. All right, so you know what, Sarah? I, I feel the need to kind of take a moment and acknowledge that um, I don't feel very warmly inclined towards this one, and I don't think you do either. It's you're in the newbie seat today, and it's it's a shame in a way to to introduce you to Barks with this one because <laughs> um, I don't have a lot of love for this one. I I'm gonna go out of my way to find some things that I like about it, but um, I, I am. Go ahead. I actually did have fun with this. The 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 content it, it was funny and of course it's funny because this is not happening right outside you know our doors so it's it's funny to laugh at how racist they were in 1947 i did though enjoy the depictions of the volcanoes because i did go to school for geology and my husband is a volcanologist and right now um i spend most of my time watching live streams of the volcano in Iceland on YouTube. So I we had some really good discussions in our house last night about basaltic versus andesitic versus desitic and what sodic means, sodic versus potassic and, and all that kind of stuff. It turns out that there's some value in the volcano storyline. I'd agree. I think um, I, I really like the high concept of Volcano Valley itself, if we're getting past some of the stereotypes. And I, I, I do want to agree with you right away. I, I, in trolling the internet, you know, it's not too hard to find people who will defend this story, right? Because for, for the kind of the reasons they usually do. 
and I, I get where people are coming from, but um, well, you know, we'll, we'll go into why I, I don't consider this one very redeemable in a way that, that I do consider some of the other problematic Bark stories. This one's kind of unique, but I don't want to... I don't want to go too hard on it because there is a there there are some fun moments um, and some some good humor in this one. So talking about some of the background, you know, we can kind of split this into like historical versus geographical this time versus geological, which is which is fun. <laughs> um, I mentioned this was released in 1947, and I I'm gonna think of this kind of as the era of war surplus. Right as as the war wound down, um, this is something. That, there's this plot point of the the ducks buying something accidentally as war surplus that turns out to be a full-on plane, and this is a trope that I've seen uh, in a lot of older media. And um, you know, I think that's kind of wound down by now. But in the decades after the war, I think war surplus was like this huge industry for a while, as the government had to get rid of like uncountable amounts of um, equipment. I, I told you that there was kind of a crazy coincidence here that right as this one, uh, right as we're set to record this one, um, a, a guy for who writes for the geek website Bleeding Cool named Mark Seifert um, published a pretty detailed article about this story. And you don't really see a lot of mainstream stories about like um, very specific Barks comics. So I'm going to acknowledge that I kind of wrote off his uh, background on this one. Um, oh, yeah, and it was a fascinatingly researched article as well, right? It wasn't just talking about the comic itself. Right. Um, it was talking about how war surplus planes were actually a thing that were bought sometimes by the dozens and um, by regular people for regular reasons right and and today that that would you know i don't i don't own a b2 now that the government has stopped using them although i did look into it and um there are quite a few old fighter planes um american and foreign that you can get for less than it would cost to buy a lamborghini wow I mean, that's an opportunity. You know, you and I both uh, lived in um, the Phoenix area for a long time, and I'm sure you, like I did, drove past the, um, the like, salvage yard near Tucson, right, where they mm -hmm. decommission planes and, and, and so forth by the thousands because Uncle Sam owns a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's fascinating. I think it's a cool... Um, I think it's a cool way to kick off a story. Um, I wanted to mention a little bit about the good neighbor policy, right? This was the United States approach to foreign policy that uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, kicked off um, when uh, when the Nazis were ramping up. You know, they they wanted to make sure that they stayed that Latin America stayed aligned with um, the U.S. and so. There was a lot of like friendly relations, which kind of ended, um, ended in the run up to the Cold War when the U.S. became even more pronounced interventionist. But um, it, it's really interesting if you look into like the history of Disney in Latin America, B 
because there was like a, a very famous Goodwill trip that Walt and a bunch of the big uh, the bigwigs at the Disney Studios made. Um, I think in the 30s, that was, or maybe the, oh, it was 1942. And that was like a, a government-sponsored Goodwill trip that uh, resulted in the release of Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. Do you know those old animated ones? No, but is that where we get the Three Amigos? Like, is that that era? No, um, this is, do you know the, like, Saludos Amigos is Donald with a couple of South American um, characters named Jose Carioca, I think, from Brazil. And um, there's a Mexican rooster whose name I'm spacing on. These were like their wartime films. So they were much shorter. Oh. You know, they, it was what the studio did to survive, basically. Um, and, you know, they were taking this government cash to make these and to foster goodwill. And the... Um, it worked pretty well, right? Because those became pretty beloved Disney characters in Latin America. Like uh, a lot of Latin Americans really enjoy the the three caballeros characters. Oh, wow! And and so and I. And the who was the third? If it was if it was Donald Duck and Jose Carioca. Oh man, you're gonna make me remember. Um, Panchito. Yeah, Panchito. Listed as pistoles here, but I've never, um, I've never heard that as his full name. But um, yeah, it's it's pretty famous. It's like a mix of live action and animation. I don't think it's the best of Disney's movies around that time, but um, it's worth checking out. You know, if you've got Disney Plus. So. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I'm not saying that. I don't think that this was like a dictate or anything, as part of that whole Disney movement you know, to foster goodwill, but it, it did come at the same time. So part of me wonders if this is just kind of what was going around the Disney offices. Um, you know, this one doesn't strike me as much of a goodwill piece because it is it, it relies so much on on stereotypes. And, and I think people would fairly point out that, you know, these were widely, widely held stereotypes at the time and still are. That doesn't excuse them, but it does help us um, understand them and contextualize them. So anyway. So in my research, um, I did a deep dive into the lazy Mexican, the sleeping Mexican stereotype. Um, and a few years back, uh, journalist Jose Arellano, who of Ask a Mexican fame, wrote a really good piece about it, giving a lot of uh, history and context and 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 how it's how the sleeping Mexican is viewed in in the U.S. versus how it's viewed in Mexico itself. And and just um, to interrupt, the, this specific image you're talking about is the classic one of um, usually a Mexican man, uh, like wrapped in a sarape, right. leaning back, sometimes against a saguaro, because that's what you do. Sure. And his his sombrero is uh, is pulled down to cover his face, and he's. He's, he's sleeping, he's resting, exactly. uh, he's taking a siesta. And, and so one of the things that I found interesting was that obviously the, the lazy Mexican stereotype pre-existed this caricature or this, this image. And, and it's, it's a popular image north and south of the border. South of the border, they, they see it as a, a man resting, rightfully, after a hard day's work. But then we get more and more tourism 
um, to the border areas. And these images turn into kitschy souvenirs. And that instead of the Americans seeing it as a, a hardworking person rightfully taking a rest, rest, yeah, they apply their stereotype to it. Right. So it's it's losing it's losing the nuance and it's only packaging kind of the after version. I I didn't read the same article, but I found some of the same discussion about this kind of either reclaiming or contextualizing that. Because again, yeah, and there are a lot of Chicanx people, artists especially, who say, no, we want to reclaim this. We want to redefine this as somebody who has worked extremely hard and deserves his rest. But of course, we're Americans, and American capitalism specifically says no rest even if you've worked hard. And and no nuance either. And no nuance. So that's going to be a hard sell. Right. And and like you mentioned, you, you know, the community is not like monolithic you you find people it's not hard to find people mexican-american people or mexican people who actually love this imagery but again they understand the nuance i would say Mm -hmm. it's the same way that many mexican-americans and mexicans truly love like speedy gonzalez but again you know there's not a lot of room for nuance so, but then sometimes we're just thrilled to see some representation, even if it's terrible. Right. <laughs> There's also that. Right. When when you're thrown um, when you're thrown scraps and it's all you've got, it, it tends to look better. So, um, just a little bit more background before we go into the story itself. I, I usually talk about notable appearances. We don't have any long-running characters in this one, other than the ducks themselves. The representative from Volcanovia is Major Pablo Manana. And um, you had pointed out, would you mind mentioning what is problematic about his very name? Right. So Manana means, it could mean morning, it could mean tomorrow. There, along with the lazy person, lazy Mexican stereotype, there's this procrastinator. Right. Right. So I'm going to put off, oh, I don't need to do it today. I'll do it Manana. And you pointed and, that and- out. And I had I had always thought of that as as morning. I was that's how I was translating it. So um, we've got Major Pablo Manana, and then we talk. I'm I'm starting to talk uh, in these episodes about um, what version of the characters we get because Donald is kind of an avatar um, that Barks kind of turns into. He, he changes his personality a little bit depending on what he needs him to do in the story. And in this one, we've got kind of the very unsophisticated. Donald, who's very easily tricked, um, but then later on he's he's more like stubborn and determined. All right, um, without further ado, I am going to launch into the story if you're ready. I'm ready. So um, Volcano Valley opens up with the nephews asking Donald for a model plane that he regards as being overpriced, and he says um, instead of buying that, he wants to get one from the war surplus people for much less. So they've got a mail off for that. And uh, weeks later, they get notified that they can go pick up the plane from the war surplus depot. And so um, they head out pondering, you know, why why do we have to drive out to pick up this model plane? Um, You know, we the reader have probably already figured it out, but there's some confusion with the agent when they go to pick it up. And he reveals that, uh, no, they have purchased a number B197X-NG 
um, plane that uh, I think it must be based off the B-2 bomber? No, uh, B-17. The B-17 bomber. Okay. So they, they are the proud owner of um, a government surplus bomber from the war for, uh, for only $2.50 is how much they ordered it for. And I didn't. Which in, I did the calculations awesome. for um, inflation. Uh, the original model that they wanted on page one was $15, which would be the equivalent of about $181 now. And their, their discounted $2.50 model would be about uh, $30.18 today. There we go. So uh, a, good, a good deal at any price. Um, so Donald is, he ha it hasn't really kicked in for him that he's gotten a good deal. And um, we see in the background a foreigner who is easily identifiable as, um, he's supposed to look Mexican, right? He's got the serape, he's got um, not quite a wide-brimmed sombrero, but a wide, very wide-brimmed hat. And um, he offers to buy the plane for $3.00 which Donald realizes, hey, that's a nice profit. And before he can do that, the nephews point out, you know, this is military equipment. You can get a lot more from it. Um, and Donald says that he's going to have to do better than that. At this point, um, the foreigner reveals that he comes from Volcanovia, a poor country, and he's going to make a grand offer of 300,000 Volcanovian pesosis. So I want to take some time to talk about the guy who's, uh, who met them at the desk and, and told them, no, your airplane is real. Good luck taking it home and also no refunds. Uh-huh. Um, I have some questions for you. Shoot. Is he the same species as Pablo Manana? Yeah, so um, you are in the newbie role. This is one of those things that's just kind of like background to people who've read a lot of these ducks, duck comics. But... Um, these are all humans, basically, right? They're, they're animal humans. It's very rarely remarked upon what they happen to be. But what Barks usually does is he defaults to a dog-like character when, when he's got background characters. That's 90% or something. That, okay. Yeah, that's the dog nose. We are supposed to read them all as basically humans. They, they'll be referred to as ducks sometimes, but... But yes. And so um, he's very clearly, you know, high status, you know, well-groomed. His hair is slipped back. Mm -hmm. His ears are, are pretty well-formed. He's wearing a suit. And then contrasting him with Pablo Manana, as a newbie, I was wondering, are they supposed to be the same species? If so, you know... Pablo Manana has floppy, less defined ears. He definitely doesn't have the slicked back hair, but he does have that circular dogish nose. Right. Yeah. I, I'd say yes. We're supposed to see them as both essentially dog-like humans, but um, yeah, I, I'd say that's a good pickup on on the fact that Barks has has drawn them. Um, everything about him kind of screams uh, lazy Mexican, right? In, right. in the kind of classic stereotype. Yeah. Um, so they, they have some introductions. Donald, um, again, he he thinks he's getting a much better offer. Um, we've read enough of these or seen enough of these to, to know some of the tropes, 
right? And we know it's coming, even if Donald doesn't. But um, he introduces himself as Major Pablo Manana. Uh, he says, Volcanovia's most honored son. Um, he gives him the wad of Pesosis. And um, he, Major Pablo, offers to take them for a plane ride if they'll pay to fill up the gas. Um, Donald, you know, he feels like a rich man with this big wad, so he um, gladly agrees. And then the gas attendant tells him he owes $1,200. Um, Donald is about to learn his lesson because the guy tells him that uh, Volcanovian Pesosis are worthless, and the stack that he's got is conveniently worth about $3. So I looked into the cost of um, fuel at the time. I don't know if Carl Parks went as far as to look up jet fuel prices. So um, He definitely didn't have Google. Easily, so. Right, and I couldn't easily find them for uh, as well. So I just looked up gas which was um, about 17 cents per gallon. Um, and uh, the 1,700-gallon tanks could give you a range of 1,850 miles. So the gas is not quite, the gas capacity and the gas cost may or may not be plausible, but if they're only flying to Mexico and back on that tank of gas, that's totally plausible. Yeah, not too far off. Still a lot of pezozis either way. Yeah, I was thinking about Zimbabwe and how their currency just got massively devalued. Right. Because yeah, of massive inflation overnight. It. And they were carrying around stacks and stacks and stacks and wheelbarrows. I was I was surprised that the he fit thirty thousand three hundred thousand pesosis in, in that uh, in case. suitcase. Right. So um Donald's in a jam here and uh he basically is forced to bargain with the guy to give him his car. Um, the guy looks at it very appraisingly, and this is already Donald's car. You know, we're a few dozen bark stories in. Um, we're only at our, like, uh, we don't have too many of the long adventure stories, but this, this is the characteristic shape of Donald's car, um, and I think this is the most detailed that he ever gets with it. But this is kind of beloved among fans, the, the details of his car, although it's usually shown as red and, and it's blue here. So, um, and it, it struck me too that he's very like understanding about having been been taken by uh, by this guy because you know he's he's still going for his plane ride. He's obviously upset, but not so upset that he's not going to get on the plane. And we have a little moment of jealousy as they fly over Duckburg. The nephews are asking, hey, isn't he turning south? And Donald's too busy trying to see if uh, someone's car is at Daisy's house. Uh, I, I did uh, notice that he called um, Pablo Manana, you chili-fed crook. <laughs> yes. Um, I think a lot of us eat chilies. A lot of us meaning not just people from south of the border. Right. Probably because they're delicious. Agreed. Probably a lot fewer at this time, right? I'm guessing it wasn't on too many American, non-hyphenated American dinner tables. <laughs> but yeah, they didn't have ubiquitous Taco Bells. Yes. All right. So um, the plane ride is basically an excuse to get the um, ducks 
unaware of where they're really going because um, Pablo does a loop-the-loop -loop and they don't have any safety belts back there. So all four ducks uh, land on their head and pass out for um, a pretty significant period of time. And uh, when he looks outside the window, Donald sees that they're flying through a huge mountain range and freaks out and he goes up to the um, cockpit to see what the deal is and he learns that Pablo is literally asleep at the wheel. Because it's siesta time, Mark. That's, yeah, we're going to find out all about Volcanovian siestas. Because um, he wakes him up, uh, or he tries to wake him up, but uh, Pablo tells him that, you know, we've, I've got 11 more minutes, because in Volcanovia we always siesta until 2. Um, and so Donald tries to take over, but the controls are locked. And uh, fortunately, before they crash into a huge range, um, siesta time is over, and he gently climbs over the mountains. I, I will note that the art, as they fly through the mountain range and like through the waterfall, I really liked the art for this part. All right, so, um, so the nephews are in a prayer posture, which we don't always see. Donald and nephews have been praying for their lives, and uh, they they yell at Pablo to take them home, but he indicates that he's lost. And then they see some volcanic eruptions, which Pablo celebrates because he realizes it means that they are at his home in Volcanovia. Um, they see the, the picturesque little capital tucked away in a valley, and uh, they comment on how small it is, and, and they go in for a landing before Donald can tell him, you know, that uh, he needs to go home. And he, Pablo just says, sorry, senors, I must have forget. <sighs> His use of language is really interesting, um, not just the, you know, E-E -E instead of I to, right. to indicate that he has an accent, but he had a really funny, if you, um, I forgot to bring it up at the time, but he had a really funny... We get a lot of inconsistent um, accent stuff. And, and, you know, we just had a story set in India, which I wouldn't say was like a, a paragon of cultural awareness, <laughs> but it, it really at least wasn't like, there, was, there wasn't much that was like overtly insensitive, and he didn't go for any kind of pigeon accent in that one. Oh, in the, it was um, up at the very beginning when he was... Um... When he was talking to, when he was offering the them the deal for the for the plane, mm -hmm. uh, he said, "Geef, I will geef something. I will geef you." Where is that? All I wrote is, "Geef is not oh, yeah, yeah. a linguistically accurate substitution." You know, the, I think that one would be a little bit closer than most of what, right? Because because we don't have a V, uh, not like an English V in Spanish. So I'm wondering if you would devoice that. You... I feel like with my regular, my relatives, I've heard it more with a geeb. Right. Like it, it's turned it into a B instead of an F. That might be a little more likely. That one, that one is not at least off, um, off target. Some of, some of the accent is definitely is. <laughs> right, like. Not um... accurate. <laughs> If you're going to caricaturize my people, get the accent right. Yeah, and there are moments where he does some accents in these that are much better than this. Mm. But at any rate. Um, all right, so they bring him in for a landing, and uh, Donald starts to see some of the topography of Volcanovia and clearly why it has his name 
Um, Pablo reassures the ducks not to be afraid of these lethal volcanoes because they won't hurt you. Um, but uh, we get a nice bit of foreboding that if the big one over there, Old Ferocio, ever blows his top, then you've got to run like the Dickens. And, you know, I... The I, Deacons. The Deacons. Run yes. like the Deacons. And I like to focus um, on this volcano stuff because I have a lot more goodwill for this part of the story, right? I think this is... <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the, there are basically two things that this story depends on, the, the two plot elements that it rides on. One of them is the inherent laziness of the people, and the other is their geography. And, uh, you know, they can't affect their geography, so. Yeah, and it's, um, it's, it's not, you know, common to have fields and fields full of active volcanoes in that way. Usually it's just one or maybe two <laughs> at a time that are going off. Um, sometimes you can have different vents, but they're going to be a little bit more of from the same magma chamber, but they're going to be a little bit more, they're going to be closer together sure. geographically. He does get it pretty close that, you know, there are very many volcanoes that have this specific shape, mm -hmm. which is, you know, like kind of tall and pointy and that they do um, spew gases and rocks and, and, uh, they are kind of these like molten, but still kind of solid, what they call bombs um, that they just shoot through the air. They're really pretty to look at from afar. Pretty destructive if you're close up. Clearly um, you are a volcano fan. I, I've, I am a fan of volcanoes. Um, I do like the little baby volcanoes everywhere, which we get to on starting on the next page. Right, right. I'm a big fan of those too. Yeah, after after he warns them about old Ferocio, they're kind of gawking at the different small volcanoes and they get smaller and smaller until they see some cute little baby volcanoes and all the ducks get, um, you know, little mini eruptions under their backsides. It's a fun gag. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I glossed over. I meant to mention when we were talking about the background that, um, you know, in that Bleeding Cool article I read, um, he had suggested that the this fictional country is based on the actual valley of the volcanoes in the Andagua volcanic fields of Peru, because that's like the place's actual nickname, Valley of the Volcanoes. I, I, like I think that, that um, I also wanted to point out um, a really interesting volcano contemporary to this, and I uh, you said you you don't think you've remembered this episode of Reading Rainbow where they read a story about a volcano that appeared in the middle of a cornfield. But there was this children's story back in the 80s, and it's based on a real a real event further south in Mexico, so not close to the border of the U.S. But um, it's Paricutin is what it's called. It just literally a chasm opened up in this guy's cornfield. And the noxious volcanic gases started to come out of it. And then, you know, ash and, and rocks. And it just turned into a volcano in the middle of a cornfield. And that um, was the first time in kind of modern history when they were able with, you know, semi-modern uh, scientific um, instruments and, and, and methodology and knowledge to watch the birth of a volcano. And I imagine that if Karl Barks had been um, had a, paying attention to National Geographic, that they would have done some coverage of it. So this those that that really captured, I think, the it could have captured his imagination in the way that he translated it into this 
even if, you know, the Mexican volcanoes were uh, not specifically where he said it. I did remember in that waterfall that they flew under, there was a little uh, alpaca or a, a yama mm-hmm. um, off in the corner. So that does kind of, even if the stereotype is purely Mexican, geographically it does look South right. American. Right. And, and I would... I would contend that this setting is basically supposed to be like a pan-Latin, you know, kind of everything thrown into the hopper. Um, It it stands out as mostly Mexican, but yeah, it it looks very pan-Latin to me. All right. So um, the the ducks do not want to stay there. Um, They are freaked out by all these volcanic eruptions, and they head to the train station to leave. Um, and this is when we kind of run into the big stereotype that everyone in Volcanovia is really too lazy to um, to do anything. And the conductor here says that he's not going to sell him a ticket unless he does something to make himself a national hero per Volcanovian law. L- let me know, Sarah, if you have anything to say over the next... I might condense these next few pages a little bit because I don't know that there's um, too much to go into detail in these, as they're just struggling to um, basically get past everyone's laziness and do something to make themselves the heroes that they need to. I, I did want to point out the colorfulness, right? The, the, the sarapes are, are not as detailed as as a real setup, I would be, but you know, there's the, the guy in the blue sombrero with the yellow and red sarape and then a, a red sarape with a green hat. Um, and then the, the pottery is obviously very vibrant as well. I, I did enjoy those color splashes. Yeah. I really like that panel, especially where they're, where he's pointing out, you know, they could, um, invent soft sidewalks for the loafers to sit on. It's the content is not great, but the panel itself is really nice. It, it, yes, <laughs> and and you can see Donald getting kind of more and more and more angry. And and this is one of the times when I had to task switch, right? Get over my problem with only reading the words and look at the pictures because he's saying like, "You left a Shangri-La like this to come to America." And I was like, oh, is he being nice to them? Is this supposed to be like, oh, I'm I'm really on their side? And then later on, he says, to think that with all the swell countries around here, you know, we end up here. Right. And I was like, oh, does he really think it's swell? Oh, no, I need to stop. Task switch and look at his body language. Oh, yes. Lunched up his his shoulders are all the way up to his ears. His fists are clenched and he's shaking. Right. He is not being... <laughs> yeah, the sarcasm is, he's being is sarcastic. oozing there. Yeah, so so the ducks are going to leave. They, they're just going to um, head to the coast. But, you know, they figure out that they have to go through the worst of the volcano fields. And so we get this sequence coming up where they're resigned, right? They have to figure out a way to get... Um, to become a national hero. And but not until... Donald takes his first nap. That's right. Yes. Which is because he chooses violence. He says, <laughs> he says, why can't you lazy, lo- why can't your lazy loafers do something to benefit themselves? Pablo points out that resting is good for you. Um, and then Donald chooses violence. 
tries to fight Pablo, but Pablo pretty easily defeats him, and Donald ends up being the one. Right, he takes a, an, un, an unwilling nap. I do like the gag that um, we can't see Pablo in that cloud of fighting dust, right? Because it would it would look weird to see him actively fighting. So that's a nice touch. And that the the Vulcanovians are still, you know, not even lifting yeah. their heads up. They're still wrapped up in there and still resting. Right. Totally unfazed. They're by aggressively the drama. aggressively lazy. So um, we we see a couple of their attempts basically to um, impress someone, um, and and they basically end up worse off, right? They try to impress the president by show, teaching them how to milk a cow, um, which is pretty insulting to think that they don't know how to milk a cow. We get a pretty great sight gag of um, a volcano-induced earthquake churning the milk into butter. So, like, if you take out all the background, that's that's pretty funny. I like that. And, and earthquakes are a regular part of volcanic region life. And, and so I, I thought that one was just pure, purely funny. Yeah. The earthquake shakes the cow and the milk, and whoop, there's, now there's butter inside Agreed. and outside of the cow. Yes, inside the cow. That sounds unpleasant. Um, and then I liked his attempt to teach the mayor's wife to, to use one of the mini volcanoes to cook. Um, yes, it, his, his next attempt to, to become a national hero is to mansplain cooking to the president's wife by suggesting that she use the baby volcanoes that are everywhere as a heat source. Right. Uh, she knows better. She warns him that it's not safe, but Donald is in full-on white savior mode and dismisses indigenous knowledge uh, to his detriment because, of course, the, flying pan, the frying pan goes flying and then the food lands on the president's head. Yes, uncomfortable but true. Um, <laughs> and and then the president uh, is roused from his slumber enough to declare him a national menace. Um, I I really like that panel specifically where he's pointing at him covered in whatever was being cooked. And and that news goes around the town um, that he we they've got a national menace, and it's mostly. Um, because everyone is considering how much work it means for them, right? Um, the judge is bemoaning that he's got to hold a trial. The executioner is bemoaning that he's got to work him in the salt mines. And uh, Donald is quickly arrested and brought to a courtroom, um, helpfully labeled with the judge and the jury box and the counsel and so forth. I, it, it felt to me like his detainment in Volcanovia was kind of extrajudicial until now. Now he finally gets his day in court. Otherwise, they, you know, it's pretty much they were they were imprisoning him. Now he's finally getting his day in court. Although they don't really care too much about counsel, right? Because it's perfectly fine in Volcanovia if your counsel is sleeping, um, or if you only have a single juror. Because um, all of the all of the other Volcanovians didn't want to be in the jury box because the chairs are too hard to sleep in. Right. And, and then this is pretty fascinating, right? We've got some some pretty overt imperialism where Donald um, is is pointing out, you know, I'm an American. I've got rights. And um, I guess this is not really too far off reality, right, around this time. 
But um, the judge is like, well, you've got to prove it. And, uh, you know, the nephews yeah, the try to... the judge asked Donald for his papers. Yes, yes. And, and they try to get Pablo to vouch for him. But, of course, Pablo is taking a siesta and the nephews couldn't wake him. And so um, they're going they're going through with this sham of a trial. Um, and the only alert guy in there, to Donald's dismay, is the state's lawyer. His lawyer, his counsel is fast asleep. Um, the state's lawyer wakes up the, the juror, who uh, turns out to be an expatriate from from Texas. Are you that <laughs> this is pretty great, right? The prisoner claims to be an American says the state's counsel. Are you not too an American, Texas Tex? And, and that's, that's hilarious. Um, Texas Tex was, is definitely an American, at least before he was run out of San Antonio. And uh, the, the lawyer asks him, as a former American, do you see any wrong in finding this other American guilty? Um, and Tex says that he needs to ask Donald a question. He asks him, is you all from Texas, Podner? And Donald says, no. And, and Tex says, he ain't from Texas, uh, so I'd say the varmint could be guilty of anything. I read that to my husband, who is from Texas, <laughs> and he was like, oh, great, now we have tech exceptionalism as well as American exceptionalism. Uh-huh. And I'd say this is in keeping with Bark's uh, depictions of, of Texans. And um, I, I do think it's hilarious. Um, again, it's it's a big stereotype, but, um, you know, this is... I mean, is... I wouldn't call it a stereotype if it's true. <laughs> they, Texas is... I have so much family there. Zach's family is from there. I've spent so much time from there. And when you're there, you are never allowed to forget that you're there, Right. This Everything is, is Texas this, Texas that. Like, Texas exceptionalism is the, it, it's just like a microcosm of America, right? They, the disregard for outsiders, the internal exceptionalism. And so, of course, the Texas exceptionalism trumps the American exceptionalism. Yeah, and I can vouch I for that, too. I think that's perfectly accurate. As someone who's working uh, virtually in Texas, I, I agree. Um, but honestly, this is probably one of the, like, nicer, more egalitarian parts of the story, right? Because uh, here we've got a Texan, an American, who, who has adapted to the Volcanovian ways. And he's found his, uh, he's found his home. Or, or the volcanic gases have poisoned him along with everyone else. Oh, I, I like that thesis. There <laughs> you go. Maybe, that's, maybe that explains it all. All right, so Donald is imprisoned, and the nephews are, um, you know, we're very accustomed to the nephews saving the day, but um, it is not to be, because they get knocked unconscious again by a mini volcanic eruption. And Donald, we get a nice sight gag of Donald seeing the kids taking a siesta too, just like the guard. And of course, Donald makes everything about him, and instead of being concerned that there are three children outside of his window who are lying in weird poses, he uh, assumes that that they've that the whatever is infecting, you know, the laziness that's infecting the Volcanovians has infected his children and or his grand. What are they? Nephews. His nephews, yes. To be fair, Donald has seen a lot of what the nephews are capable of, so. It, I'll defend him a little for not being too worried. 
because we've seen them rescue him at this point by by piloting a snowplane by themselves. He is imprisoned, right? He is facing life in imprisonment. At any rate, the next morning, uh, they wake up to find the jailer come to bring him to the salt mines, and um, he locks the nephews up so they don't interfere. And, you know, at this point, it is nature that intervenes. Um, but wait, not, but first, they pull the same thing that, they pull a page out of the Karen handbook, just like Donald did earlier. You can't do this to us. We're junior members of the Bear Club, Bear Cub Rangers. That's true. At least they're not playing to their nationality, right? This is the precursor to their famous membership in the Junior Woodchucks. Sparks hadn't, uh-huh. hadn't created uh-huh. okay. that yet. Um, I did. I did find it interesting that like we're we're part of this group. You mm-hmm. can't. We're immune from whatever is happening because we are part of this group. You know whether it's wrongful imprisonment or or what. But it's not that this violates you know international treaties. It's, right. it's that I'm a member of this group. Yeah. I mean, American said. exceptionalism was very strong at this time. Um, you know, I have to like. I keep. I keep thinking to myself, I better be careful, like not to not to be too critical of of our country in this podcast. And then I think to myself, well, you know, seventy percent of my readers are from uh, Scandinavia and the Low Countries, which is like the <laughs> which is where people care about Disney comics. So maybe I should, maybe I need to bash it even more. I guess I do like that nature intervenes here. You know, it seems very fitting, right? An earthquake. And it's plausible. Yeah. An earthquake, a volcano-induced earthquake, um, demolishes the jail. The ducks are able to get free. They dash past their the jailers, and uh, the jailers take just a moment to wonder what they're going to do and realize that, hey, now they're out of a job, and this is great. So we can celebrate with what else? Siestas. Yes, one big siesta. So we have come to the point where, as expected, old Ferocio um, chimes in. Ferocio, the the dreaded giant volcano, is starting to rumble. I didn't mention that old Ferocio has like a a very grumpy-looking visage, right? Um, it's very personified. This is a great panel, right? Just showing showing it rumbling. Um, I do like this one a lot. And so they remember what Pablo said. They get ready to run like the Dickens, um, but they're like, well, let's wake them up. Um, we can be national heroes. We'll save their lives. You know, those are both good things. Um, but of course, these walking stereotypes are in siesta mode and they are not to be woken up. And um, so they do find Pablo, you know, they're the closest thing to a local friend. Um, they can't wake him up, but one of the nephews um, suggests to ram a handful of peppers down his gullet. And that does wake Pablo up. You know, he opens his eyes wider than he has at any point in the story and comically clenches his throat, um, dives into a fountain and, uh, you know, he, he's awake, though, and he realizes what's going to happen with old Ferocio. And they, they demo- devise a plan. They see a bunch of baskets full of some stuff, and, and they're going to drop it in the volcano to see if they can plug it up. And, and Sarah, as a volcano fan, 
what do you think about their plan? Clearly, that's what everybody is missing, right? Everybody else in the world. They're building these retaining walls <laughs> in, in, in Iceland to try to keep, to try to at least channel the lava or t keep it away from certain areas. They're worried about the lava flow affecting infrastructure and roads, cutting off, you know, a road that is kind of necess necessary to a nearby town. Had they read this, though, they would know. Yeah, they'd have a good you know, road map. And I'm not going to... a bomber full of baskets of whatever, they could have done that. And I'm not going to go too hard um, on this because, you know, every, every episode we get a little bit of cartoon logic. Um, oh, yeah. And, and so that's fine. Uh, but but yeah. it is pretty funny. So so they managed to dump those baskets of whatever in, and uh, it seems like they've saved the day. And then they it occurs to them to fly back and check, you know, hey, what was in those baskets? And uh, they realize that it was full of popcorn. Um, and of course, we've dropped popcorn into lava. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb with my extensive volcano knowledge, which is not much, and say that those kernels are melting on contact. Oh, they're vaporizing. Yeah. Although this does give me an idea. We have plans to go visit the volcano in Iceland later on in the autumn or the, maybe even in the summer. I'm going to bring some popcorn. You, you do that. You do that for Pablo and the ducks. And so we get, uh, you know, this is a pretty, pretty fun gag where um, Volcanovia gets covered by snow and the ducks are like, oh, no, I'm never going to be a national hero. I'm still going to be a national menace. I'll never get out of Volcanovia. But Pablo cheerfully says, oh, yes, you're going to get out of Volcanovia. I can't dare show my face there anymore. And he's got a pretty great attitude about emigrating from his beloved <laughs> homeland. Oh, I mean, at this point, he's going to be a refugee. Yeah, that's true. If, if, if he can't, um, if he's fleeing persecution based on covering his beloved hometown in popcorn. Yeah, I guess he's got that becoming, kind of standing. Becoming a national menace. I think that's pretty good grounds for being becoming a refugee. That's a good point. Uh, and then at the end, you know, they go to celebrate, but uh, we get a nice sight gag where the all the excitement of it all has been too much for Donald, and uh, he is taking a siesta at the, at the um, bottom of the plane. And, it's his first time really sleeping, sleeping, yeah. aside from being knocked out. And he's got a After a, a very nice, long couple of days. He's got a very satisfied looking grin on his face. So I imagine it's a, it's a good siesta. All right. So that is the story content of Volcano Valley. Um, thank you for helping me out with that one. We're, we're going to transition now to talking about the general consensus and our own thoughts um, I always check, Sarah, the, the aggregate website index, um, which is great because it gets us a pretty good feel for how the fandom um, regards this story, as everyone who wants to can vote on it. And this one got a 7.6 out of 10, which ranks it as story number 214 out of roughly 40,700 stories that have been ranked on Index. So that's very high. Most of the Bark stories do rank very high, um, but even relative to the other Bark stories, that one is only outranked so far by the stories that we've done um, for Terror of the River, 
continues to be our highest with a 7.7. And last um, episode, Maharaja Donald has a 7.7, a slightly lower 7.7. Um, so this one is apparently very well liked by the fandom. So I want to acknowledge that a lot of people do like this one. In Googling um, for this story, I do find that there are a lot of people who have written Anyone who's written about it in the last 10 years or so, there's at least some of the kind of conversation that you and I have had. So I do think it's probably getting some critical reassessment, but Index has been around since the pretty early days of the internet. So I don't know. I, I haven't been secretive about this one. You know, I, in researching this, I found a thread with some back and forth between the reviewer and some commenters. Um, and so there are definitely people who are going to go to bat for this one. But um, I think that, to me, it's very obvious that the fundamental problem with Volcano Valley is that the story is absolutely dependent on this racial stereotype, right? Like, that is... I mean, it's even kind of secondary, even though the title is Volcano Valley. Um, I would argue that the the laziness of the inhabitants is the like the main plot beat to this one. And so for me, um, while I do enjoy certain gags and some of the art and parts of this, that overall makes this one pretty much pretty much irredeemable. How about you, Sarah? I was thinking about ways that it could be different and that I would not find it problematic. Right. And, and the biggest thing, like these, these gags aren't not funny, Yeah. but because it's very dependent, as you said, on this stereotype that I'm just, if this, if they were in like a suburb of Cleveland, this would be pretty funny. If it weren't, if, if they were just sleeping, they were just sleepy people instead of lazy people even. I think that would be funny because this whole like laziness, even if it were not dependent on a racist stereotype, would still become a problem. So if it was just like, oh, we just want to sleep instead, it doesn't speak to our character. It's just a thing that we like to do. Then maybe it would be funny if they were right. running around and there was a volcano about to blow and they couldn't wake anybody up. Can I ask you this? You, you had a good thought. Like, what if, what if it was articulated that it was the volcanic fumes or something? Or, or what if, like, later on, Barks will do a lot of like um, alien races or, or hidden underground races? You know, what if these were like aliens and they weren't connected to the specific stereotype? You think it would have been funny then? Aliens, sure. Um, you know, as long as they weren't like parallels. To right. If they weren't thinly veiled. Race. Right. Yeah. So it um, it could be funny. And I'm sure it was funny. I'm sure they didn't see the harm that it did. Um, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who still can't see the harm that these kinds of stereotypes do, right? Because it's not advocating for, you know, worse things being done to these groups. Right. Um, there, there are very few purely clean, clean in the sense of not based on racist or even ableist stereotype jokes within this comic. And that um, that really would make me rank it quite a bit lower yeah. were I to rank, you know, this would be, in, in, it would be take last place in all of the one Bart stories that I've read. <laughs> sure. 
Although, it, unfortunately, it it's also... Supplanted. What's that? Unfortunately, it's also the best one you've read, so... Yeah, it will very easily be supplanted as the number one that I read. Well, we'll have to I bring you... We'll have to bring you back, because I'm pretty confident that, um, that you'll enjoy others of these. And I don't want to, I don't want to be too hard on it. I, I do think it deserves, I, I do think it deserves criticism. Um, but, but yeah, you know, I, I think back to when I read this one as a kid and I wasn't very, um, I, I wasn't very justice minded as a kid, um, what 10 year old is generally, but, um, but I remember not being a big fan of this one just for story reasons. So I don't think that my opinion of it is being colored too much. Although, again, I do like the volcano stuff in this a lot. I don't want to dwell on what... I usually have a whole section here about what is either dated or archaic. Um, but we already went into some of the cool war surplus stuff, and then we've definitely tread well on what's retrograde and problematic with this story. Um, I do think this is a low watermark for this one, because even though there are going to be some other um, really cringy stereotypes and caricatures, um, this one alone has a plot that's dependent on it. So, fingers crossed. I don't think there's a ton of educational value in this one, and that's not me being trying to bring it down even more. I just don't think that I didn't really learn much from this one. Sarah, did you have any panels that stood out as like a favorite panel besides some of the ones that we had already mentioned? I said earlier, I really liked um, the colors that show up in, in Volcanovia. Um, and of course, being an Arizonan, I do love depictions of snow. So that very last um, panel on the one page where the popcorn had right. made it look like it was snowing on the palm trees. I really liked those. You know, I I liked there was this one where they oh even that pile of rocks is a volcano. I just <laughs> thought it was just kind of adorable. And then the when they were all getting goosed by the little tiny baby volcanoes. That was, was fun. Just, that was really cute. Right. I really enjoyed the court like just the layout of the court scene. Um, when he's brought before the High Court of Volcanovia. I thought that was a cool panel. Um, I really liked the splash panel that was at the very, very beginning um, that shows them running from volcanoes in general. That one was really cool. And uh, I feel like there was at least one more. A lot, of, a lot of the panels as they're flying on their way to Volcanovia, I think I already mentioned the waterfall one. I did like that one quite a bit. And then, you know, as they land in Volcanovia, when they see it in the valley, that's a very pretty one, um, despite what I might think about the country <laughs> itself and its, <laughs> and its depictions. That looks pretty cool. And, and yeah, like you said, most of these little volcano ones, it's just, it's a very whimsical, very, this is a very Barksian part of the story, you know, the things that he does with the volcano. So I wish it could have leaned into that and away from the stereotypes. Um, Sarah, I really appreciate you coming on. Do you have any further thoughts, anything that you didn't get to mention that you wanted to say? I did want to point out that um, ice in Iceland, I'm obsessed with Iceland. <laughs> they do have a bread that they make using geothermal heat. So they obviously don't put 
it on the volcano, right. but they have so much groundwater that's geothermally heated, they will go near a geothermal spring, dig a hole, wrap up the bread that they're about to bake in foil, and then bury it for a period of time. Nice. So there is cooking. You can cook with geothermal heat. Donald I, just needed to use more, like, indirect heat. Exactly. He shouldn't have used the volcano as a hob. He just, he should have used it as an oven. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for that. So again, hopefully we can have you back for a, a good one. Um, thank you to, to the listeners for joining us. Um, hopefully, hopefully my criticism of this story isn't too alienating. Um, if you have other thoughts, if you'd like to defend this story, then um, feel free to reach out and drop us a line at barksremarks at gmail.com. Uh, we do have a Facebook page. Um, and you can join us next time on Barks Remarks when I'm, I'm so excited because um, I get to talk about one of my all-time favorites next time, which is Ghost of the Grotto. So I think this is going to be a, a, a wonderful turnaround. So thank you, Sarah, and thank you, listeners. Mm -hmm.